morning, everyone. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. And in a minute or two, I'll be um, opening up, leading us as we open up God's word, God's word together. I'm afraid I don't have a microphone. Am I, am I wobbly with you? With me? Here's what's going to happen. You're reading scripture, you and I are going to figure out how to make this microphone work. Um, it's not turned on. That can't be right. Can it be turned? It's, sure. Turn the microphone on, Brian. Hi. I'm Brian. I'm the comedy act, but now we're going to hear scripture. I've invited three of my friends uh, to come and uh, read our scripture passages this morning, and now without ado, I'm going to have them do that. Oh, I should say, this is Mike Verrigan and Gaylene Warden and Kirk Meisenheimer who've come to help us this morning. Good morning. This is a passage from Isaiah 38, verses 1 to 8. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order, because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and wholehearted, with wholehearted de uh, devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you from this and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. Assyria. I will defend this city. This is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will, give, will do what he has promised. I will make the shadow cast down by the sun, go back 10 steps, it has gone down the stairway of Ahaz. So the light went back 10 steps and it had gone down. Mark 7, 24 to 37. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the uh, vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. There some 
people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. They begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. He spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said, Ephaphatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they replied. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I'm reading from James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. Is anyone, among, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the, and the, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up, and if they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and earth and the earth produced its crops. Thank you to all three of our readers. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to start in a moment, but uh, first I have an important announcement to make. Uh, this is the time this announcement needs to be made, and ordinarily it would be Jamie, our lead pastor, who makes it, but um, he's decided that I can fill in in his stead, and it's this. Um, in a few weeks' time, on Sunday, April 16th, we will be holding our annual general meeting, uh, and this, uh, you'll be receiving more information about this uh, by email this coming week, uh, and by next weekend we'll have copies of our annual report um, ready for you here. Um, but this is the official fuel pulpit announcement. The AGM will be held in this room, the chapel, on Sunday, April 16th at 12.30 in the afternoon. Um, and I can tell you we're going to organize a congregational lunch between the end of the service and the beginning of the AGM for that purpose. Anyway, uh, that's the announcement that I need to make. Um, now let's open up God's Word. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, our desire this morning is not to hear a pastor speaking. Uh, it's not even um, solely to study this um, sacred book, uh, this wonderful living word that you've given us uh, in the scriptures. Our desire, Lord, is to see and know and to be drawn closer to and deeper into the experience and understanding of who you are and who we are in you. And so, Lord, that's our prayer, that you will draw us to you and into you um, through your word. Amen. 
So <clears throat> most of you will know, not everyone, but most of you will know that uh, my wife, Sumitra, and I moved here about five years ago from uh, Toronto. While we were there, we belonged to a, a church, and as part of that church, we um, belonged to a small group Bible study, a home group that uh, met fairly regularly, actually, in our home. And there was a whole assortment of wonderful people in uh, our gospel community, our, our small group, our Bible study. One of those women was a wonderful uh, older Japanese woman. Now, I, I didn't have a chance, I wasn't able to reach her this week to get permission to use her story, so I'm going to change the names. Let's call her Hamari. Um, Hamari had an interesting story. She'd grown up in Japan, um, had been sent to a um, private Catholic school by her parents, not to become a Christian, but because that was where the, the most excellent education was available. But as a result of being exposed to the gospel, she came to be a follower of Jesus Christ um, as, a, as a relatively young woman, um, a girl really. And uh, this was a challenging thing in her life. Uh, you know, 80 years ago in, uh, or 90 years ago in Japan, and even to a certain extent the, to, this, to this day, it's not that cool um, for a Japanese person to become uh, a follower of Jesus Christ. But she did. She subsequently uh, moved to Canada, met her husband, who is Japanese-Canadian. They married um, and have been uh, together for probably, I think, close to 60 years now, if not more. Here's the thing. Her husband, Riku, is not a follower, is not a believer. Um, but by the time we met Riku, or um, Hamari, she had been praying for her husband for over 50 years. She had been faithfully praying that her husband would have an encounter with the living God and would come to believe in and be a follower of Jesus Christ. And it had never happened, but Aiko continued, or oops, sorry, I have to, have to erase this now. <laughs> sorry. Hamari, um, Hamari uh, continued to be faithful in her prayers. Now, there's an end to that story, um, but I'm going to save it until the end of the sermon. <laughs> which means that none of you can leave until I'm done. <laughs> Since January, we've been working our way through a sermon series on uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Jamie, last week, um, uh, opened up the passages at the beginning of chapter 7, and the passages that Gaylene read for us this morning are from the second half of chapter 7. Now, it's important to understand that in this part of Mark's Gospel, Jesus and his disciples have essentially gone on tour there's a big chunk of time where he's conducting his ministry in Galilee, in the region of Galilee, but he's now gone out to some places outside of Galilee. There are two episodes that took place in the reading that Galen shared with us this morning. One of them took place in uh, the city of Tyre, which is in Phoenicia, up on the Mediterranean coast, sort of northwest of uh, Galilee, in fact, um, uh, it's about 65 kilometers northwest of the Sea of Galilee to Tyre. And the second episode actually takes place in a region which in biblical times was called the Decapolis because it was a region characterized by 10 major cities. And that region actually is to the west of, uh, or rather to the east of, um, of the Sea of Galilee. We're not going to be looking at both of those stories in detail today. Um, I, we're going to focus instead on the first story, the story of the woman that Jesus encounters in Tyre. Now, um, 
when you read any passage from Scripture, it's important that you look at what that passage itself has to say, but it's also critically important to understand it in the context of the book that it's contained in. And so all of the, the unpacking that we've been doing of passages in Mark needs to be informed by our understanding of what's happening across the Gospel of Mark as a whole. And this story, in a number of ways, reflects themes that we see all throughout Mark's Gospel. And interestingly enough, um, a couple of them are themes that have been very present in our minds at Seven Oaks over the last month or so because they reflect things that came out of, as Chantel alluded to, the Soul Care Conference. Jesus in this story um, <clears throat> once again establishes that he has complete authority over evil spirits. And this is a running theme that we've seen so far in Mark's gospel. Jesus has delivered a number of people, has cast out a number of demons um, up to this point in chapter 7. He's also um, uh, done a number of healings, divine healings on people. Um, and the other theme that we see running through Mark's gospel that is reflected in this story is this idea that at this point in his ministry, Jesus is telling people, don't go spreading the word about that. Now, that has to do with him managing the timeline because he knows that there will come a point where his ministry becomes so large and so popular that the public authorities will come and arrest him. Uh, and he has a very deliberate plan for when he wants that to happen. So these are themes that we see in this story that run through, throughout the, the Gospel of Mark. But I have to tell you, this story has got these extraordinarily unique elements. So there's key things that happen that in some ways make them unlike um, most other stories um, in, in the scriptures. And they make them very interesting to me, and I think um, they should be um, draw the attention of all of us. One of them is that this is an encounter that Jesus has with a Gentile woman. The uh, Mark in his gospel says that she's a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia, now, Greek in New Testament terms doesn't mean she was somebody from Greece. It means, in essence, she was a Gentile. She was a non-Hebrew. Um, Matthew, in his gospel, recounts this event as well. And he actually, in Matthew's gospel, refers to her as a Canaanite woman. Less important than where was she specifically from is that this is a Gentile. This woman is not a Jew. And <clears throat> so that's significant. Now, Jesus doesn't have a lot of encounters with Gentiles. But if you look through the Gospels, you'll see that almost every time he does, it turns out to be a really significant encounter. Um, in um, Matthew and Luke's Gospels, we have the account of a centurion, which is to say a very high-level Roman military officer who has a servant who is paralyzed and is, is um, it seems, on death's door. And the centurion seeks out Jesus to get miraculous healing for his servant. Uh, and that story is very striking because Jesus essentially offers to go to the man's home and heal the servant, and the centurion says, no, no, I know you don't have to do that. I understand how much power and authority you have. I'm a man with my own level of power and authority in my life. I believe that you can, can heal my servant from a distance. And Jesus does, and Jesus strikingly comments in that story. He turns to those disciples around him and he says, I tell you, in all of Israel, I have never encountered a man with as much faith as this man has. 
There's another story that you'll all be familiar with. It's in the Gospel of John, which is Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. It's a very long conversation that he has with her, and there's a lot of dense theology and and, um, illumination in that story. But what's perhaps key is that although she's a Samaritan, she's not, strictly speaking, um, part of the nation of Israel, she knows that there's a Messiah coming, is waiting for the Messiah to come in hope and expectation. And by the end of the conversation, Jesus reveals to her that he is the Messiah. She comes to believe that he's the Messiah. And not only that, she becomes like an evangelist that would put the rest of us to shame. She just goes out and tells everybody in her town about him. And uh, Matthew tells us that many, many came to believe. What's striking to me, additionally striking about the story of this woman who encounters Jesus asking to have a demon cast out of her daughter, is it's not just that Jesus does cast out the demon, but this happens despite the fact that it seems like when she first asks, Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do it for good reasons. He essentially says that passage where that Galen read where he says, he says, it's not right for the children's food to be given to the dogs is a reference to the fact that he has stated, my initial and primary ministry is to the people of Israel, is to the Jews, and it's only later that we're going to talk about ministry to the Gentiles. He, in essence, says to her, sorry, your timing's bad. Right now, all I'm doing is bringing healings and, and uh, deliverance and hope and the news of the kingdom to the people of Israel. It's striking that she gets the deliverance that she asks for, despite the fact that Jesus initially says, no, I'm not going to do that for him. Now, um, I've alluded to the fact that Matthew has, uh, um, describes this incident as well. One of the principles for really understanding Scripture, and we have this blessing that many of the stories that we have in one gospel are also recounted in others. And it's helpful when you're studying a passage, if there are parallel gospel accounts, to go and read them because they can cast additional illumination. Um, And I'm going to take a moment or two now to do that with Matthew's account because I think it helps us with our understanding what's happening in this story. I'm reading to you from Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. There are three really, really striking things about this story I want to point to. The first is, he grants her request 
because, wait, hang on. Look, somebody shuffled my pieces of paper. And the sequence of this is really important. Talk among yourselves. Some of you are praying, and I know that some of you are praying in support of what's happening <laughs> up here. Uh, sure, here it is. Very good. Here's the first amazing thing, and I've alluded to it briefly. This woman recognizes who Jesus is. She hasn't just come to him because she's heard that there's a, a really talented itinerant, you know, demon slayer wandering around the countryside. The scholars point out that in Mark's account, she calls him Lord. She's the only person in the entire gospel of Mark who refers to Jesus Christ as Lord. Matthew says she calls him Lord, son of David. And the biblical scholars tell us that um, that expression, son of David, is one which in the cultural context of this time would have been exclusively used to refer to the anticipated coming Messiah. This Gentile woman knows that she is talking to the Messiah who has been promised. And this is a really critical thing. It happens with the other Gentiles too, right? I mentioned the story of the centurion. The fact that the centurion has complete confidence that Jesus is capable of healing his servant from miles away shows that the centurion has a pretty sophisticated sense of who it is that he's dealing with. And of course, the Samaritan woman at the well just flat out comes to understand that he's the Messiah and goes and tells everybody else. This is critical. The second thing that's extraordinary about this story, I think, is that he seems to grant her request because of the strength of her faith. Now, friends, you've been, had the experience, many of you had the experience of hearing me preach on and off the last five years. Um, and you know that I try to be as honest as I can with you about places where the theological ice seems a little bit thin or there <laughs> seems to be a little bit of a minefield. And this is a challenging theological topic Right? This is tricky because if we say, oh, look, the story of the Syrophoenician woman tells us that whether or not God is going to heal us or, or cast our demons or whatever has to do with the strength of our faith. It's not far from that to a really dangerously, I think, heretical kind of view that says what God does and what God can do depends on us. We, in essence, have control over what God does. And I think that's a dangerous path for us to go down. So I'm very wary of, of the possibility of us going in that direction. 
But I'm a, I'm a, a minister of the gospel, and, I'm, and it is my duty to open up the word and preach the word. And there's, you, I can't skip passages like this one because they seem difficult for me to explain. It is undeniable in Mark that, G, that um, Mark lays out the theme that faith has an influence on what happens. He teaches this. In Mark chapter 9, when he deals with a father whose son is possessed by an evil spirit, the father says, Lord, if you can, could you cast the demon out of my son? And Jesus initially goes, if I can, um, which sounds slightly like, you know, like Jesus being defensive to me. But what's critical is, is that he then goes on and says to the man, everything is possible for one who believes. And elsewhere, in chapter 11, there's this episode where uh, Jesus curses a fig tree, and the next day when he and his disciples are coming by, they notice that the, the fig tree is completely, you know, sort of withered and died, and the disciples, bright fellows that they are, are astonished by this, and they say, Lord, like that plant that you cursed yesterday has withered and died. And Jesus says to them, look, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And you get these specific affirmations throughout Mark's gospel. In chapter 5, he deals with this woman who's had um, uncontrollable bleeding for years and years. I think it's like for 12 years. And this woman comes and touches the hem of his garment, and he senses the power has gone out of him, and he confronts her, and, you know, she says, Lord, you know, I sort of desire to be healed. And Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Similarly, um, a little later in Mark's gospel, um, we may touch on this as we move forward in the series, but in chapter 11, there's a man named Bartimaeus who's blind, and Jesus heals him, and he says, go, your faith has healed you. And even in our story, although Mark doesn't make any reference to Jesus saying anything about faith, in Matthew's account of this woman whose daughter had a demon, Jesus says, you know, your faith, because of your faith, I'm going to grant you this thing. So what's striking is, is that the person in this story knows who God is, knows that they're dealing with God when they ask for this thing, and apparently their faith, this person's faith has got something to do with the fact that the wish gets granted. And then the third, and I have to say, in some ways, the most challenging aspect of this story for me is that, and it's pretty clear, I've read it over dozens of times to see if maybe I'm misreading it, but it really does seem like she changes his mind. And there are other places in Scripture where it's very clear, God says, I'm going to do this. And the Scriptures tell us that someone argues with God, pleads with God, petitions God, and God says, okay, I'm going to do something different. That passage um, from Isaiah that Mike wrote, read for us this morning about um, Hezekiah. And God says, sends, sends the prophet to say, you aren't going to recover from this illness. You're going to die soon. Hezekiah prays earnestly and God says, 
tell you what, I'll give you another 15 years. Scripture contains these accounts, and you can't, can't just go, oh, well, eh, let's pretend they aren't there. They're there, and we have to kind of engage with them. I mean, in our story this morning, the one that Galene read, the woman, you know, riffs off of, you know, Jesus says this thing about how, you know, it's wrong to give the children's food, you know, to the dogs. And the woman says, yeah, but the, even dogs get the scraps off of their master's table. And Jesus says, for such a reply as this, you can go. Because of the answer that you've given me, I am, in fact, going to heal your daughter. In fact, I have just healed your daughter. The third reading that we had this morning, the one that Kirk shared with us, is from the gospel, or from the letter of James. And it's a passage on prayer. And I had um, Kirk read it for a very specific reading, right? I, I love James because, uh, unlike me sometimes, he is very confident in his theology. Like, James is a confident guy. You read him, uh, and he's really confident about stuff. So confident that poor old Martin Luther couldn't deal with him and said, let's just ignore James, because he's too opinionated. Right? So you kind of get the impression from uh, reading James that, that there's no question you can ask James that James wouldn't say, well, yeah, I can answer that. I can explain that pretty clearly, right? And on the subject of prayer, James is very confident. In the passage that Kirk read this morning, James says, look, if you have a need, if there's something you need from God, pray. And number two, if your prayer is offered in faith, it will succeed. And he says, number three, goes on to say, the prayer of a righteous person, that is a person who's in right relationship with God, as in a person who understands who God is, understands who it is that he's praying to and is bringing the right attitude in, in asking that person, those prayers are powerful and effective. James is big on prayer. As you know, elsewhere in James' letter, he says to his readers, if you don't have what you want, it's quite possibly because you haven't asked God for it. He says, you don't receive because you don't ask. Now, James is understood to be the brother of Jesus. And James's teaching in his letter lines up perfectly with what we see from Mark's gospel in terms of what Jesus himself taught. So, my contention to you this morning, as I move in the direction of wrapping up, um, although those of you who have heard me preach before know that me moving in the direction of wrapping up doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to make it to lunch. Um, I would contend that this passage can be for us a passage about prayer. Now, it's not specifically about prayer because the woman who encounters Jesus is with him, like in real life. It's a real life event. She's specifically asking Jesus to um, cast the demon out of her daughter. But understand this, the person she's asking to do this for her is the exact same person that you and I are asking when we pray. It's the same God. He happens to be incarnate in the flesh, but, but she's praying. And so I think that her story offers us some insights about how prayer works. There is, let me say this, I'm not as confident in my theology as James is, but I, I 
I can't escape the conclusion, I argue that we can't escape the conclusion that there is a relationship between faith and the efficacy of prayer. There's no escaping the fact that at the beginning of this story, the woman says, cast the demon out of my daughter, and Jesus seems to say, no. And they have a conversation, and she changes his mind, and Jesus says, yes. Right? So what happened? What changes his mind? What's the difference between the front end of the story and the back end of the story? And I'd like to make three observations. The first of them is this. There is some kind of connection between how God bestows his blessings on us and our understanding of who he is. There is some kind of connection between how God bestows his blessing on us and our understanding of who he is. This woman called him Lord, the son of David. She knew that he was the Messiah, and this seems to be very critical to what happens between them. She knows who God is. She knows that it's God that she is praying to, right? And I would maintain that when you and I pray for things, when we ask, whether it's for healing or for our fears to be lifted or to be released from the bondages that we're in or for loved ones of ours um, you know, to be okay, like whatever it is we're praying for, the reason we're praying is because we know who it is that our prayers are being offered to. We pray because we know who God is. The second observation I would make is that there is some kind of connection between how God bestows his blessings on us and our faith in his ability to answer those prayers. This woman has absolute confidence that Jesus can do this. Not only does she come some distance, you know, not only does she kind of break into this circle of, you know, with this Jewish rabbi and his, you know, his Jewish um, followers, and, and apparently he has to, in Matthew's account, she has to kind of get past his gatekeepers to even get to talk to him. But she comes and she's persistent in this, and there's no, there's no suggestion that she's going, would it be at all possible for you? She says, in essence, in the context, I know you can do this, please do this for me. Right? And then what happens is, it can't miss these little details in the story, he says to her, okay, <clears throat> your argument has made a difference, your faith has made a difference, your daughter has her demon cast out. And the woman just goes. She just then goes home in complete confidence that when she gets here, there, she's going to find what she does in fact find when she gets there, which is that her daughter has had the demon cast out, that her daughter is no longer suffering. Now, I still want to caution you. Um, many of you will know that the founder of, of the Christian and Missionary Alliance um, was a man by the name of A.B. Simpson. And A.B. Simpson, in some of his early writings on the subject of faith healing, essentially says, <clears throat> if you've asked for divine healing and you haven't received it, that's because you don't have enough faith. Now, I and most Alliance theologians disagree with A.B. Simpson on that, and the scholars will tell us, the historians tell us that his position on it softened somewhat as he went kind of through his career. 
But again, I want to caution that it's really dangerous for us to get in a situation where people pray for healing, they don't get it, and our immediate conclusion is, it's not God's fault, you didn't have enough faith. Because it's not our call as ministers of the gospel to throw people back on works righteousness. It's not our, our calling to say to you, you're going to have to jack up your faith you know, in order to empower God to do good things in the world. That's not the way this is queued up. But there is some connection between belief and outcome. We pray, I pray, you pray, not just because we know who God is, but because we have absolute belief that he can do what we're asking for. We pray because we believe that God can and does answer prayer. And third, there is some kind of connection between how God bestows his blessings on us and our willingness to ask him to. In this, I think James is spot on. If you don't ask God, you can hardly complain that he hasn't given it to you. Right? I mean, consider the story of this woman in Tyre. Her daughter is possessed by a demon. She's suffering. This woman goes. She petitions Jesus. Jesus casts the demon out, and her daughter's fine. But what if that woman hadn't come? What if she hadn't come? It's a long stretch to say, oh, Jesus probably would have cast the demon out of her daughter from, from a distance anyway. I mean, in practical terms, if she hadn't come and asked, her daughter wouldn't have had the demon cast out. That's an inescapable logical conclusion from the way the story is structured. And it echoes us back to James. You don't receive because you don't ask. However else prayer works, prayers that don't get asked don't get answered. The efficacy of prayer is connected to our willingness to ask. I'd like to uh, invite the worship team to come back and get set up because I just want to wrap us up. And I want to wrap us up by returning to the story of Himaru and Riku. Himaru's story was and is, it always was to Sumitra and I, a profounding a testimony and witness to the greatness of God. We love knowing her because her life and faithfulness is completely inspiring to us. She's been praying for her husband, had been at the point that we knew her, for over 50 years, unceasingly. And she continued to pray for him. She wasn't discouraged or despondent because, number one, she knew who she was offering those prayers to, and she knew that he's a God who can and does answer prayers. I told you the story isn't finished. Here's the big reveal. As far as we know, Riku still isn't a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are thinking, hey, wait a second, Brian, you set us up on that one. The, the end of the story was supposed to be that, you know, last year he became a believer. And wouldn't that be great? That would be a fantastic end of the story. But I kind of like the current ending a little bit better as a sermon illustration. And I'll tell you why. I think it's more inspiring because 
We are called to pray. You and I are called to pray, and we do pray. We should pray, we do pray, we should all probably pray more. Well, I don't know about six of you who should, who it seems to me couldn't be possible you could pray more, but most of us could probably pray more. But what's important is we don't continue to pray because we are certain of the outcome. We pray because we're certain of who it is we are praying to. We are certain that he loves us. We are certain, as we've sung this morning, that he is good. We are certain that he can answer prayer. We're certain that he does answer prayer. That's why we pray.